0: This is a talk by Joel, titled The Relationship Between Love and Truth, recorded December 9th, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'm going to uh, attempt to answer or at least explore a question that was in the question box. This is uh, submitted by Wesley, and this is a wowie one. <laughs> The way of devotion and the way of truth. Aren't these two paths intermingled in our practice? Aren't they really just one path? So what does it look like to have both devotion and truth in our meditation, our inquiry, our relationships, our social concerns, and our emptiness? That's part one. (laughs) Part two... Most religious people are in some way or another only on the path of devotion and love. How can we best introduce the way of truth to religious people? Well, you know, we could spend a year talking about all this, but that's okay. We can start a dialogue going, and hopefully I'll start your own minds going and your own hearts going a little bit, and ultimately we're not going to solve all this here. It's something that uh, we each have to discover in our own experience anyway. But let's do talk about this a little bit. Let's explore We'll take the first part of the question first and reduce it to what is the relationship between love and truth, and the path of love, the path of truth. And I think a good way to begin is to go back to the Hindu uh, sources because the Hindus uh, perhaps made the clearest distinction between these two paths. You do find them somewhat distinguished in other traditions, but often you don't find them distinguished. So, uh, if we want some clarity, we should start with some distinctions, recognizing that they're only relative. In the Hindu tradition, uh, they distinguish several types of yogas. Now, yoga means discipline or practice. Uh, In the West, most of us think of yoga as specifically one form of yoga, the hatha yoga, the stretching exercises and so forth. But yoga is a term that has much broader meanings. And so, uh, the two primary yogas are considered Janana yoga and Bhakta yoga. Janana is the path of knowledge, mystical knowledge here, though, ultimately, not just uh, theoretical knowledge. And Bhakti, or Bhakta, is the path of devotion or love. And as I say, there are other yogas in between here. There are yogas of sound... There's the Hatha Yoga and so forth. But we might think of these as two ends of a spectrum rather than two ultimately distinct things. So the first question here, aren't these disciplines really just one? And the answer is yes, they are really just one. And they're just one because they lead to the same end. And that end is the realization of who we truly are. And... Who we truly are is not some little separate self. We are consciousness itself, or spirit, or Buddha nature, or God, or Brahman, or the great Tao, or whatever term that each tradition uses for the ultimate reality. So the truth is the truth of selflessness. Taking that in a literal sense. There is no self. There is only God. There is only Brahman. There is only consciousness. So the realization of this truth is the realization of selflessness. Now, selflessness is also love. Because true love is selfless. And this part we know from our own experience. And most of the time in our loving relationships, it's a mixture. We have our own agendas, but we also have genuine feelings of a selflessness. We want the good of the other person or the society or whatever. Occasionally, uh, in our ordinary lives, we actually experience pure selflessness, You read about this, uh, whenever there's some disaster, there's someone who (coughs) rushes into a burning building, a fireman, and rescues someone, risks their own lives completely. Sometimes even sacrifices their own lives for someone else. So this kind of pure selfless love is usually rare in most people's experience, but we can see how it sort of peeks through our our delusion, (coughs) because this is a delusion that we are a separate self. So we can say that really love is simply truth and action. The truth of selflessness manifested. So when we manifest in our own lives selfless love and compassion or the degree to which we manifest it, we're manifesting truth. And the degree that we realize the truth of our own selflessness, the degree we automatically start manifesting love and compassion. Because The more we understand we don't really exist the way we think we do, the less concerned we are about that, and our attention, our energy, and so forth, just automatically flows outward. So we could say that love and truth are really two aspects of this underlying reality, consciousness itself. So, even though they are really two aspects of the ultimate reality, it's still meaningful to talk about them as something separate insofar as they reflect differences between individual seekers. And these differences had to do with basically two things, motivation and then practice, the style of practice, what motivates the seeker and then what sort of practices does the seeker adopt. So let's talk about this a little bit more specifically. You know, people come to a spiritual path for a lot of reasons. One of the biggies is suffering. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, used to say there are two things that motivate people on a spiritual path. It's suffering and then little tastes of truth or bliss or whatever. And he used to compare this to the way you handle donkeys. He was a big donkey handler. He was a sort of an outdoorsman and stuff. And he, you beat them with a stick behind and you dangle a carrot in front of them. See. So <laughs> they, they go in order to get away from the stick, but they also go in order to get the carrot. But a lot of people come to a spiritual path, I would venture to say the majority, because of some form of suffering. It may be a big crisis in their lives, it may be a psychological crisis, it may be a medical crisis, maybe some loss of someone they love, uh, or it may be something that grows gradually, a kind of a growing dissatisfaction uh, with their lives. That even though they've got lots of material goods and so forth, it's just not satisfactory. That age-old question that we humans always ask is, isn't there something more? There's got to be something more than this. And then, if we, out of this crisis or out of this growing dissatisfaction, if we stumble on some spiritual teachings or a spiritual teacher or whatever, and if it speaks to us, and the way it speaks to us, by the way, is always arousing our own intuition, so if something speaks to you, it's not just something coming from that side. Even though it may seem to be, there's a connection there. It arouses something in us, and then the motivation starts to change. Now the motivation of the carrot comes into play. And people have two different aspirations in this regard. And again, I'm making a broad brushstroke statements. So often they are intermingled. There are those who have this burning curiosity for the truth. What is the truth about myself? What is the truth about this world? It's very mysterious that we stop to think about it. When we're children, we learn the truths of our culture, which are adequate for us to function in the world. We go to school, we learn science, we learn all sorts of things that work at a certain level. But really, how do we get here? How did all this get here? What are we doing here? Is there any purpose to being here or not? Even science, you know, modern science, can explain how all this got here back to a certain point, the Big Bang. But you ask any scientist, well, what was before the Big Bang? How did the Big Bang happen? No one knows. We just sort of push the question back, you know. And most of the time we don't worry about these things until something happens in our lives that makes us start to pay attention. So the path of truth, the path of Janana, is a path that people who have this uh, desire, this, uh, this curiosity, tend to follow. Here's how the Hindu Upanishads, the great ancient Hindu texts, put it. Man must find his true self. He who has found and knows his true self has found all worlds and has achieved all his desires. So the idea is we want to know the truth about the world, but especially about who we are. Who am I is the question. Who am I really? I mean, am I really just a body? Am I really just these thoughts? Our bodies change over a lifetime. You know, are you the body you are now? Or are you the body you were when you were two years old? Your thoughts change, your emotions change. Who are we really underneath all this? And then the path of janana, the path of truth seeking, investigation, is the path of trying to find this out. Here's how the Buddhist Zen master Huang Po puts it Only come to know the nature of your own mind, and you will in fact be a Buddha. Buddha nature is the ultimate nature in uh, Buddhist uh, traditions. So the secret is hidden within yourself. Now, it's interesting to note. To take the path of Janana or the approach of Janana, I'd rather say approach because they're really all just one path, you don't have to believe in anything. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to be religious. You don't need nothing except curiosity and perhaps a kind of intellectual honesty. You can't settle for less than certainty. Simone Weil, who was a great mystic of the 20th century, who actually in her own path combined Janata and Bhakti, in a very uh, uh, close equilibrium, she said, you know, belief is not worthy of God. Only certainty will do. So if we just settle for mere belief, we're actually not honoring the God that we are believing in. Anyway, so this is how the path proceeds. It's this investigation. Who am I, basically? What is the world? Now, Bhaktis are motivated by love and a longing for the divine. Here's how Narada, who's the author of the great Hindu Bhakti Sutras, defines it. He says, Bhakti is intense love for God. That's pretty simple and straightforward. This is really Jesus's commandment, you know, the greatest commandment, love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, with all thy mind, or might sometimes, which actually just comes from the Jewish tradition. It's built into the Shema, which is the Central prayer of Judaism. Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's another line in there, and then this is this line. So Jesus is really just teaching, uh, Judaism to Jews, but he's, he's pulling it out as a practice. What would it mean to actually practice that? How demanding that is? Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. What would that mean? Hmm. Interesting. In order to be a bhakti, you'll notice, you do have to have some experience or belief in the divine in some form. Ultimately, of course, the divine is formless. But even in the form of an experience, it doesn't have to be something concrete. So, for instance, it's very uh, traditional in the Hindu tradition to fall in love with the divine in the form of a guru. You meet someone who's spiritual, and they reflect that essence to you. And you get a glimpse of it through the guru. In the Christian tradition, when Jesus was walking the earth, he served that function for his disciples. (coughs) Nowadays, Christians get that through an archetypal form of Jesus. That's Jesus' role in Christianity, to be the mediator between God and man. Jesus has a form. Jesus is something that you can uh, respond to immediately, not the formless father that stands behind it all. It may just be a presence, a feeling of a presence. Simone Weil, who grew up without any religious background whatsoever, in fact, she was interested in radical politics, at a time in her life when she was in a, a period of intense suffering, she suddenly was overwhelmed with this feeling of a divine presence, which was love, and that's what put her on the path. So whatever form it takes, it doesn't matter. But you do need some sort of experience of the divine because you can't love or even begin to love with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, something that you have no experience of, no knowledge of. So you can choose in a certain sense, in a relative sense, to be a Janani. You can't, in a relative sense, choose to be a Bhakti. So that's one of the disadvantages of the bhakti path in that sense. And you know, Christians are always running into problems with this because they're trying to tell people how wonderful their religion is. You know, if you only love Jesus, let Jesus into your heart. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't love Jesus, how can you force yourself to love, you know? It's like, I, we've all had this experience where we meet somebody who all our friends say is just right for us, you know, as a mate, right? Right. They will say, oh, what a wonderful person, all these great qualities, and you appreciate them, you think that's great, but you just don't love them. I think almost everybody here has gone out with somebody at some point who loves you and has all these great qualities and everything is great, but there's only one thing missing, you don't love them. Has anybody had an experience like that? Or has anybody not had that experience? No hands. You didn't have that experience? Wait a minute, I got Yes or no? you Yes, you've had the experience of, of being in love of somebody being in love with you, but you just didn't love that, right? Yes, okay. George communicates by looking at my hands here. So this means yes, this means no. George is not only a fully functional mentally, he's very bright, so don't just mistake this for some sort of catatonia. All right. So this is a matter of grace, really. Once that happens to you, once there's some glimmer of an experience, and I said, you don't have to be religious prior to it, it can come any time, like Simone Weil, but once that happens, then there is the possibility of taking a Bhakti approach. And then, yeah, go ahead. It seems that Janani also has to have the grace to uh, believe that there is a truth to find, and, and, the, and the longing to find it, in order to start on that path. This is true. That's why I said in a relative sense, you have a choice. But ultimately, it all goes back to everything's grace anyway. But in a relative sense, you can use the mind. You can convince somebody, persuade them uh, to at least uh, look. Do you know what I mean? They do have to have that intuition. You're right. They have to have that curiosity. Without that curiosity, there's not going to be much of a path. And at different times of our lives, uh, we're not interested. For a long time, I wasn't interested. I wasn't curious. I was interested in making money. Yeah, really. And then I was curious about how you made money. So, <laughs> uh, so you're right. We're always talking in a relative realm here, you know, everything collapses ultimately to the void. All right? So then what are the differences of the practices that Janani's take up and bhaktis take up? Well, Janani's main practice, and I say main practice because there are other practices, and no one can get away with only doing one practice. Or I shouldn't say no one, that's an absolute statement. Almost no one. The main practice is the practice of inquiry. Looking into the phenomena of our own experience. The phenomena that we call the world, and the phenomena that we call self here. Looking directly at it. Here's how haiku. A Zen master describes it, as he's describing looking for your Buddha nature. It is something you must investigate and clarify for yourself. You must investigate it, whether you are standing or sitting, speaking or silent. When you're eating your rice or drinking your tea, you must keep at it with total single-minded devotion. The more curious you are, the more that curiosity is a burning curiosity, the more you'll be able to do this practice in the way he's describing. You know, most people, when they start on a spiritual path, don't just jump to this. It's something that progresses. Uh, There are two ways you can go about making this inquiry. You can use the intellect by making uh, analysis of thought itself. What do I think I believe in? What do I think is true? Is it really true? And if you are someone who trusts logic, who has great faith in logic, like my teacher, Dr. Wolf, who was a classic Janani. If you are someone who trusts logic and you really investigate and you don't settle for, well, good enough. That will keep showing you that whatever you really think is true, you're not really certain about. And you can carry this process out and make that the main part of your path. What it does is it exhausts thinking, as my teacher put it. You get to the point where the mind has nothing more to think about. The thinking mind itself realizes it's never going to solve this and it shuts up. (coughs) That's a beautiful place to be. (laughs) Most Jananis combine intellectual analysis, particularly in the beginning of the path, with a non-conceptual form of meditation. In other words, just what we were doing this morning, where you train your mind not to be wrapped up in thought so that you can look directly, experience directly, nakedly, what is going on in your life without the filter of the concepts you've inherited from your culture, your friends, your teachers, and so forth. And this is what the Janani is aiming for, a non-conceptual insight or series of insights about the nature of the world, and about the nature of oneself. So that it's an experiential truth. It's not something we are convinced of intellectually, and then we can doubt It's something that we experience. And what you've experienced, you cannot doubt. So it usually proceeds by inquiring into first uh, the nature of phenomena. The first thing we get insight into is its impermanent nature. Everything is impermanent. Now, we can say this, and I think most people here would assent to that. You know, even the stars, science tells us, are impermanent. Eventually they're going to implode or whatever. But what mystics are talking about is everything, every moment in our experience is impermanent. The sound of my voice (coughs) is impermanent. My thoughts are impermanent. (coughs) My emotions are impermanent. The perceptions I have are impermanent of the world. Right now my eyes are open and all this is in my visual field. I close my eyes, it's gone. I walk out of here and all this is gone. There's a whole other phenomenon in my visual field. The sounds I hear come and go. The sensations. Everything is impermanent. And this realization of the impermanence of everything leads to detachment. Not because I am forcing myself to give things up because I see the futility of trying to grasp on anything. So in this practice, at this point, I am implementing three of the four principles that guide all practices. Attention, commitment, detachment, and ultimately is surrender. I have to pay attention, but I have to make a commitment to pay attention, like Hakun described. I really have to look, and I have to look until I am satisfied that I have seen something that I now know to be true. I know everything's impermanent. I know from my experience. If I keep looking, I never find anything that is permanent, anything that's impermanent, any phenomenon. Then I turn this inquiry onto myself. So, who am I? Well, all the things I think I am are impermanent. My body is impermanent. And not only is my body impermanent because it's going to die, my body is impermanent moment to moment. Sometimes I'm aware of it, sometimes I'm not. I go, I go to sleep at night and there's no body. Or maybe I have a different body. Maybe I'm a bird and I'm flying through the air. Or the mind says, well, there must be a body there lying in the bed. Okay, that's thought, but that's not my naked experience, is it? That's why it's so important to do this meditation, to free our minds from this thought and see what is our real experience. My thoughts, my ideas change. They, my thoughts come and go very rapidly. My emotions, sometimes, you know, you feel like you're stuck in anger. But really, you look, anger comes and goes. Even if you feel a, a, you're stuck in some great mass of anger, if you look very closely, it's more like vibrations. You know, it rises, falls, rises and falls. Everything is impermanent. Anything you think you are, go investigate. This is the challenge that mystics say to Janani's. See if you are that. And if everything is impermanent, if everything comes and goes, there is a certain sense that I am still here. I don't feel I'm coming and going in all this. So what is that I? What does it really refer to? If it doesn't refer to the body, and it doesn't refer to our thoughts, and if it doesn't refer to our emotions, what does it refer to? In Hinduism, this practice is called neti neti. Not this, not that. You examine, and you see, no, I'm not this, and I'm not that. I'm not this, and I'm not that. And you're stripping away, so to speak, <clears throat> All this impermanent phenomena, trying to see what is there that is eternal, that is not impermanent. So that's the main practice of the jhani. Finally, it leads to a realization of a total surrender of self, of the little self, separate self, because you realize you aren't this, so you let it all go, all that cling to I, me, mine. And a total surrender of all thinking about all this, and then you arrive at this space where everything stops and you see the truth. There is no self. There's only consciousness itself. And all this is just forms of consciousness arising out of consciousness, passing away into consciousness. Yes? When you talk about consciousness in that way, uh, does that include everything? Plants, trees, everything? Or just humans? Everything. Okay. Rocks. Stars! But this is something to investigate. Have you ever experienced anything outside of consciousness? No. Yeah. So, in that sense, everything is inseparable from consciousness. It's in the same way that everything, like an object, like a gong, stands in space. It, it, It manifests in space, right? We, in our minds, think of space as different from gong. But, if you really examine this, this is the path of inquiry, you can't have a gong without space. You might have space without a gong, but you can't have a gong without space. So in that sense, it's inseparable from the space in which it appears. And that's what mystics mean about everything, as an expression of the space of consciousness. That's a a little clue for you to follow. You inquire about that. There's a sense that everything else has consciousness, also. Uh, here's a question for you. Do things have consciousness? And you, never mind about other things, start with yourself. Do you have consciousness, or do all the things that you consider to be you appear and disappear in consciousness? Perhaps both. Well, you investigate. I will. And if you think you have consciousness, or say I have consciousness, then answer the question, to what does the I refer? This is what we're trying to find out. Really, to what does this I refer? Uh, Then this realization, there is no self, there is no world, as something independently existing out there. Like I'm here, and I'm in this world, and this world is different from me. This whole illusion about how reality is constructed, we realize that's not true. There's only consciousness. Here's how Shankara, who was a great... Hindu Janani describes this. And in their terms, it's the realization of Brahman, which is the name of ultimate reality, which is described as sat ananda which means being consciousness bliss. Where is this universe? Who took it away? A while ago I beheld it. Now it exists no longer. This is wonderful indeed. I have realized my identity with Brahman. My mind fell like a hailstone into the vast expanse of Brahman's ocean. Touching one drop of it, I melted away and became one with Brahman. So this is an example of the end of the Janani path, where it goes, and using this primary practice of inquiry. Now, the Bhakti's primary practice is devotion. And devotion requires, again, a commitment (laughs) to pay attention to the divine, to continue to pay attention to the divine. If you've had some glimpse of the divine, some experience and so forth, then it's to continue to go back and find it again and find it again and find it again. It's often described as the beloved. And by the way, the beloved is a term you find in almost all uh, traditions. You'll find it in. Hinduism, you'll find it in uh, among Sufis and Islam, you'll find it among <clears> Christians. <throat> the analogy here is like falling in love, but it's falling in love with God. So you could say it's like the first glimpse you get, it's like you're walking down the street, you know, and you see in a window, you see this person, you just know it's your soulmate, right? You ever had that experience? You saw somebody, it was just instant attraction, not just physical attraction, I mean, wow! And then you look again and they're gone from the window. Well, do you want to see them again? You know, because like knocking on doors. Who lives up there on the third floor? You know? (laughs) Well, it's a a similar thing. You have this glimpse. So now you're looking for the beloved. And where do you find the beloved? In all traditions, it's the exact same answer. The beloved you find in your heart. God is within your heart. So if you want again to meet your beloved, you go back to your heart. You go back to your heart. And this becomes a practice. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's called prayer in the heart, but the same practice under different names is found in other traditions. Here's how Theophane, the Recluse, who's an Eastern Orthodox Christian, describes it. Turn to the Lord, drawing down the attention of the mind into the heart, and calling upon him there. With the mind firmly established in the heart, stand before the Lord with awe, reverence, and devotion. Now, this can be a formal practice, literally. And I'm not going to describe in detail how it works, but it's basically a meditation practice, the same sort of meditation we started with. Instead of concentrating on the breath, you are concentrating first on the physical heart. But when mystics talk about heart, they don't just mean the physical heart. They mean that deepest part of us. But since the physical heart is where we usually experience emotion and so forth, it's a nice place to begin. And it also gets us out of our mind. So we're not getting distracted by thoughts. See, same thing. And we go into the heart, going to the heart. And we make that a formal practice that you do, you know, once, twice, three times a day or whatever. Then once you can uh, continue to encounter the beloved sort of rendezvous in your heart, this is like having dates, you, okay, you've knocked on the door, you found the, where your beloved lives, you went and you asked your beloved out for a date. Mm-hmm. And then you've been having dates now, every right? Friday night. Well, you know, pretty soon that's not satisfying. You wanna be with your beloved all the time, not just on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. So then how do we stay in the presence of the beloved? Well, again, there are other practices that help us do this. In the Eastern Orthodox, it's called unceasing prayer. It's also called this in Islam. In uh, Hinduism, it's called Japa. Japa means the repetition of a divine name or a mantra or something over and over. Here's what Anandamayama, who was the great Hindu saint of the last century, says. While attending to your work with your hands, keep yourself bound to him by sustaining Japa, the constant remembrance of him in your heart and mind. And the, the most formal kind of practice is literally to have some divine name of your beloved, if you have like Allah, 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 and you say Allah, 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 and you say it all as you're going about your day. It might sound uh, at first impossible to do this. How would you then, you know, pay your bills and things like that? In point of fact, if you practice this, what happens is the divine name starts to repeat itself. The Sufis call it the zikr, the, the remembrance. That The heart steals the zikr from the tongue, and then it goes on itself. The Eastern Orthodox Christians say that Jesus prayer, which is the form they use, becomes like a, a brook murmuring in your heart just all day. It's a little bit like, you know, you get a TV jingle or something stuck in your mind, except that's a very superficial level. But it gives you some idea of how this is actually possible. You actually feel it reverberating in the heart area, in the chest area, not just something up there in the mind distracting you. Now, if you practice this, then you more and more experience the Beloved, you more and more experience the presence of the Beloved, what Christians call consolations or graces or whatever. And this leads to detachment, again, not because you're forcing yourself to give things up, but because this experience outshines all the worldly pleasures that you can imagine. So you thought it was great going to the movies or it was a great, I don't know, whatever, you know, shopping and so forth. Well, they don't compare. Here's how Rumi, a great Sufi poet, uh, describes this. And he calls this entering the world of poverty. This does not mean outer poverty. This is a spiritual poverty, which is the poverty of giving everything up to the beloved is what it means. When you enter the world of poverty and practice it, God bestows upon you kingdoms and worlds that you never imagined. You become ashamed of what you longed for and desired at first. You say, oh, given the existence of something like this, how could I have sought after such trifles? So, you know, it's a little bit like, I don't know, when we grow up, you know, when we're children, uh, we're fascinated by toys and all that. We outgrow them. They're greater pleasures, you know. You turn 12, 13, 14, you discover sex, and, you know, who wants to play with dolls or fire engines anymore? It's the same uh, principle at work here, and then eventually the path of bhakti leads to this—not a denial or or pushing away of the world. It's really detachment from the idea you're ever going to find permanent, ultimate happiness in all these pursuits. That's what it is. And yes, go ahead. It's not. I guess that's where I find confused. It doesn't mean you you just lay back and just relate to God and don't pay your bills or don't even go out and eat or I mean, you have to survive. Actually, I I've, I've skipped a little step here just for brevity's sake, but to answer your question, I'll throw it in. What happens after a while is you begin to see the divine in all things. So just to give you one concrete example, you're not cleaning your house for yourself. You're not cleaning the house to impress your friends when they come over. <laughs> you're not doing it for all these reasons. You're doing it because you recognize this is God's house, (laughs) as is everything. So now you are cleaning the house of your beloved. And truly speaking, this is something you have to discover in the practice. It transforms all these mundane tasks that we don't normally like to do into very joyful tasks. Precisely because we're not doing them for ourselves without any self-worry or concern. or What are people going to think of me if my house (laughs) isn't clean and I've got better things to do? What better thing could you do than serve your beloved? And everything becomes that. So it's not uh, turning away from the world in that sense. In the beginning of any spiritual path, just as an antidote to our conditioned, habitual grasping after everything, we do exercise a little restraint. But that restraint isn't because there's anything wrong with the world. On the contrary, the world is an expression of the divine. The world are forms of consciousness. So to, to uh, think there's anything wrong with the world is to think something's wrong with your lover. It's like saying, you're a wonderful person, but I don't like your face. <laughs> your face is ugly. I just love your soul. Is that? Yes, thank okay. you. <coughs> well, um, is yearning grasping, though? Ah, okay, another good question. Very smart, these people here. Janana's path is to treat emotions with equanimity. That is, neither grasping nor pushing away. You allow them full expression, but you are interested in them. You don't want to repress them at all because you're interested in what they really are, but you're no longer identifying with them. There's a slight difference for a bhakti, and that is, you're taking all those desires you had for everything in the, in the world, and you're fusing them and stoking them into a desire for the divine, which will carry you. You see what I mean? This is perhaps a Irreverent analogy, but I used to know a junkie, heroin junkie. This was years and years ago, and in those days, there were junkies and the, you know normal people were straight people. That, that was the terminology. And he said, "You know, all you straight people, you're all a- addicted to things too, just like I am. You're just addicted to lots of things. You know, you're addicted to money, to houses, to family, to this and that. I'm only addicted to one thing. So I get up in the morning. I just need one thing. I need my heroin. That's it." So, it's a little bit like that. Instead of having all these scattered desires, fragmented, all the desires become fused and sharp and focused. In fact, there's a story about once a young man asked Ramakrishna, "Uh, how do I overcome lust? And Ramakrishna says, overcome lust? You should increase your lust. (laughs) But just direct it for God. So, So, um, in the process of yearning, and the kind of pain that comes a, a kind of pain with yearning, um, is not grasping because grasping is, is trying to, wanting to hold on to, to be static, and yearning is not static? No, there is a yearning here. Let's not <coughs> fool ourselves. I mean, there is a grasping in this yearning. There's a grasping and yearning, yeah. But the point is, it's only one grasping. You don't have to deal with any other grasping, because all you want is God now, okay? And that's actually what it does. The path of bhakti, Creates detachment from everything else but God. Only attachment to God. And then in this, you begin to realize what separates you from the divine. Yourself. And you see what's going on. You see whenever I, me, mine enters, there's separation from the divine. Whether there's self-surrender. Surrendering your will to God's will and so forth. There's a closeness. So you start surrendering. Self. Self. Wherever you can. Ultimately, you surrender yourself, and ultimately, you surrender even that yearning. <clears throat> now, we tried to delineate Janana from Bhakti and what the differences are. By far and away, most seekers combine these. It's almost impossible not to. And it's just a matter of emphasis and degree. Some people uh, more follow inquiry. Some people... Uh, follow bhakti more, uh, it's very possible to jump from one to the other. You might start out as a janani and do this inquiry and suddenly have this explosion of the divine and fall in love and become a bhakti. You might very well be a bhakti and you're, you know, blissing out and all that and you get more and more interested, well, what really is God? And you start making an inquiry and you can do the same inquiry about God that you can do about yourself and you'll arrive at the same place because they are identical. And in the Christian tradition, among Christian philosophers, uh, taking from Plato, there's exactly this. It's called the knowledge to abstraction. You say, what God isn't? Well, God is not that. God is not that. Neti, neti. And then you arrive at the God that is beyond God, so to speak. So, this talking about them is just for clarity. It's for structure and communication. And then, it's a question of emphasis, and it's a question of what is explicit or implicit. So, for instance... A Janani has to be devoted to truth, has to have this yearning, this burning curiosity, not just a mild curiosity, it has to be the kind of thing that will turn your life around. Here's how Dr. Wolf, who as I said is like a classic example of a Janani, writes about uh, using thought on a spiritual path. The thinker must learn also to feel his thought, so that in the highest degree he thinks devotedly surrendering himself to truth, claiming for himself no rights save those that truth herself bestows upon him. In the final state of perfection, he possesses no longer opinions of his own nor any private preferences. This is the state of mystic ignorance, of the emptied heart. He who thus becomes as nothing in his own right then is prepared to become possessed by wisdom herself. The completeness of self-emptying is the precondition to the realization of unutterable fullness. Now, if I put God instead of truth in here, that sounds like a bhakti writing. You see what I'm talking about? It's the same reverence and devotion and attitude towards truth that a bhakti would have towards God. It's also true that bhaktis have to practice self-inquiry have to become aware of what is going on in themselves. What are the veils that stand between them and the beloved? And Ananda Mayamai writes about that. She says, It is important to discriminate minutely. If you examine yourself, you will see, what have I been doing the whole of today? For how long have I remained without the remembrance of God? How much have I thought of the beloved, and how much of that which is harmful, which leads to death? Become aware of this. So, this is a, an advice to a bhakti to practice self-inquiry. Both bhaktis and jnanis have to practice love and compassion. This is key, no matter where you are on the spectrum. Love and compassion for other beings, serving other beings. Here's a Tibetan Buddhist who's a very Janani tradition, at least at the uh, more educated levels. Janggang control. He writes, The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking complete hold of the welfare of others. <coughs> and here's Catherine of Siena, who's a great Christian mystic. She writes, or oh, this is God talking to Catherine of Siena. In loving me, you will realize love for your neighbors, And if you love your neighbors, you will do everything you can to be of service wherever you are. For where the fire of my sweet charity is, the water of selfishness cannot enter to put out this sweet fire in the soul. So the reason we are practicing love and compassion is not to make the world a better place. That probably would happen, and that's gravy, and that's wonderful. We are practicing it for ourselves in a funny, paradoxical way. We are practicing it because if you try to practice it, you will see the obstacles. You will see that part of you that's mixed in that says, well, I, I can't give a dollar because uh, I really need this dollar. You know, I was, I don't know, I was going to the movies tonight and I only have five dollars. This person needs a dollar, but I want to go to the movies. Uh, you see your self-centeredness. You see that little separate I-ego-self rising when you try to practice compassion. When you can see it... <clears throat> Then you can experiment and you could say, well, what would happen if I just give the dollar away? And you discover in your own experience the joy of giving. It is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not some platitude. It is more joyful. It is true. And the more you do that, you realize your suffering doesn't come from whether you have a dollar or not. It comes from all that worry and concern about what's going to happen to me we go around carrying this huge burden of self. And, and in one sense, it's ridiculous. There is no self there. It's a, a completely self-created. And now, if we want to take a Janana approach, we can say, what's the worst that could happen to you? Well, I could die. Good. You're going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you spend your whole life trying to avoid death. That's not a joyful way to live. That's a guaranteed <laughs> prescription for living and suffering. Let it go! See what would happen. So this business of love and compassion, the Buddhists have a wonderful way of of, uh, stating this. They say, the teachings are like seeds that you give to a farmer to plant his fields. And other beings are the field in which we plant the seeds. Without the seeds, nothing will grow. But without other beings, we can't practice. If we can't practice, we can't learn about ourselves. So in Buddhism, they don't have any idea of God or devotion to God, but they have a tremendous idea of devotion to other beings. Other beings are our teachers. Other <clears throat> beings are our opportunity. It's complete reverence. And the more they challenge you, the more they're your teacher. That's why uh, the Dalai Lama was asked, who is his greatest guru? He said Mao Tung, You know, it was the Chinese leader who was alive when they were driven out of Tibet. And somebody didn't think he was serious. And he said, no, I am. He said, I grew up in a palace studying Buddhism. I ate off gold plates. I had servants. I had all that. I studied suffering, but I had no idea what suffering was. Until Mao Zedong came along. He taught me suffering. And then I knew what Buddhism was about. Jesus said, what? Love your enemies. Why? They're your greatest teachers. That's Why? Not because you're going to get into heaven if you love your enemies and somebody's, you know, keeping score and giving you little merits or (laughs) demerits. Part of the question was, and I think this is maybe what Wesley wanted really expounded, but we had to to set the background for this. How do we practice this love and uh, wisdom or truth in our personal relationships and in our social activities and social actions, stuff like that? And the answer is simply compassion. And compassion combines the two. My teacher said, you know, compassion without wisdom is blind, and wisdom without compassion is impotent. So when we practice compassion, it's not just a gut emotional response to a situation. True compassion also has to have skillful means, wisdom. We have to bring wisdom to it. We have to really pay attention to the situation. We have to try to see what is the good of the whole. And the same action in one situation may not be skillful in another situation. And we might actually have to do something that doesn't look compassionate. That looks cruel, even. There's an expression I think most of you are familiar with, tough love. Tough love can be compassionate. So it's not a naive compassion here. It's a wise compassion. And that combines these two approaches to the spiritual path. And there's no end to that. This kind of wisdom is relative wisdom. This is always the, the unfolding of the, of the uh, dance. And we get better and better by making mistake after mistake. That's how we learn. So if you're looking for the perfect act of compassion, it doesn't exist. It's the intention which is pure, but in the act, it's all relative. You'll do things that won't work, it'll backfire, whatever. But if our intention is pure, if our intention is selfless, then we are manifesting both love and truth. So to summarize this, uh, we could say that self, the little self, the ego self, is like a prison. It's made of brick and mortars. And the approach of Janana is like having a pick. And with that pick, you pick out one brick at a time. You dismantle the prison by picking out a brick here, a brick there, a brick here, and more and more light, more and more spaciousness comes through. You begin to see the freedom on the other side, and finally you'll get to that one brick that you'll pull out and the whole thing will fall apart. The approach of the bhakti, the approach of love and compassion, is like using solvent to dissolve the mortar that holds the bricks together. So the best path is, you know, you put a little solvent on dissolve the mortar, use the pick, pull the brick out, put solvent on, you know. This is why it's said in, in, in a number of traditions, it's a very common metaphor that love and wisdom or love and truth are like two wings of the same bird. The bird cannot fly without the two wings. And I put a little P.S. in here for Wesley, because part of his question was, what does it look like in relation to our emptiness. I had to think about that one for a moment. But uh, that I said, of course, that uh, love and truth, and the way we manifest them, fly out of emptiness, and they go back to emptiness, along with everything else. So, then uh, this last part here. Most religious people are in some way or another only on the path of devotion and love. How can we best introduce the way of truth to religious people? You know, I'm not sure we need to, uh, first of all. And part of the reason is that most spiritual people uh, gravitate or are drawn to the path of devotion. And there's a very good reason for that. It's easier. And if you've had an initiation, see, this is the big if. If you've had this encounter, if you've had this glimpse, it's easier Uh, Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, the great uh, classic work of Hinduism, he said, you know, the way of the formless, that is the way of inquiry into what has no form, is very difficult for people. It requires a lot of toil. But if you focus your devotion on me, Krishna, my form, then very quickly I will lead you out of the ocean of suffering. I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what he says. And, And that is true. Now, having said that, though, I do think that in this particular time and place. Historically, uh, the path of truth in our Western culture has been eclipsed. And there are historical reasons for that going back to the European Enlightenment, which has nothing to do with spiritual enlightenment. Uh, And at that time where reason and uh, philosophers using reason were challenging the dogmas of religion and so forth, there was a kind of gentleman's agreement that divorced reason and mind and intellect from heart and faith and religion. And we live with this today, do you know what I mean? Religion is subjective, it's in the province of faith and <coughs> your heart and how you feel, and science is in the province of truth and what's objectively real and whatnot. So there's been no communication hardly between them, and it's interesting how quickly uh, religious people gave up the province of truth to science without much of a fight. Uh, so, they're partly at fault here too. But I think that we also are now, very recently, uh, living in a time where there's a possibility of a reapproachment between, we could call it, the heart and reason from a spiritual point of view. Because the philosophy that stood behind science, materialism, has turned out to be totally inadequate to explain modern science. It's an obsolete worldview. So that means scientists don't know what they're doing. I mean, they know what they're doing, but they don't know why it works. So there's a chance now of rediscovering the way of truth and saying, well, actually the way of truth isn't competing with science because we're not out to create a new theory about the world, but we are going to use our minds, we are going to use our intellects on a spiritual path to get beyond the intellect. And so that's one way you can talk to people who think that religion is only a matter of faith in the heart, and you can create a dialogue. Another good thing to do is, if you're interested in talking to people, first of all, you can't talk to people about their religion unless you know and respect their scripture, the scripture that they trust and believe in. And if you do that, then it's uh, not difficult to open a kind of Socratic dialogue where you question them about what their scripture means. So one of my favorite ways to talk to Christians, especially what we call fundamentalist or dogmatic Christians, is to say, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, know the truth and it shall make you free? And in fact, the whole quote is, if you are truly my disciples, you will put my teachings into practice and then you will know the truth and it will make you free. Which means something then more than just believing that Jesus was the son of God. How is it that practicing this will reveal some truth to you? What kind of truth would that be? And then the word in that context of know is a verb form of the word gnosis, because, you know, the Gospels were written in Greek, which was a Greek word that meant a knowledge beyond theories and belief, dogma. So he used a very precise word in this context, or at least the gospel uses it. It really means mystical knowledge. By the way, gnosis is spelled G-N-O-S-I-S and etymologically it's from the same root as janana. J-N-A-N-A. They go back to the very same (laughs) root. Then let me say one final thing here about this whole business of talking to religious people. We have to be so careful not to be arrogant, not to be condescending, not to be judgmental. Very often... I've found in my life, in my experience, unsophisticated religious people practice their religion far more consistently and better than so-called sophisticated people do. And I just saw an example last night on television. There was a little story about a group of Baptists uh, who had come up to New York, and their mission, as they put it, was to clean the apartments of everybody around Ground Zero, because it's all covered with dust. And they go in with mops and pails and sponges, and they do this as a service. And they spend a week, and they come from all over the country, Alabama, Mississippi, you know, places like that. And instead of taking vacation, they come to New York, they set up in tents wherever they can, and they spend their vacation cleaning other people's houses. That's a religious calling they have, you see what I mean? Now, we talk a big game sometimes, but how many of you would give up your vacation next year, take a week off, and instead of going to Hawaii and relaxing on the beach or whatever, would go to New York and clean houses for a week? You ask yourself that. So we have a lot to learn from people like that. So when we can really have the humility to learn from them, then we have a basis of a dialogue, a respectful dialogue. Sometimes you find very dogmatic Christians or Jews or Muslims or whatever, who will just say, if you don't believe exactly the way I believe, you're damned, and that's it, And you can't talk to them. And don't get excited about it. Your intention was good. You tried to establish an honest dialogue between equals out of love and compassion and whatnot. It doesn't always work. There's no magic bullet that's going to make it happen. So I hope that that was somewhat helpful in answering your question. I hope it was somewhat informative to the rest of you. We have a little time left. Does anybody have any other questions that came up? Yes. I had one about grasping and yearning. Uh huh. Um, is grasping maybe more self oriented for purely self service and yearning, maybe more with a bigger picture? When we yearn in, in relation to love, the, the implication is at the very least we want what's good for the person we love as for ourselves. And I say, the motivation can be all mixed up in there. Do you know what I mean? And we find that out through a relationship, you know. But, uh, Totally self-centered grasping is where we want to take advantage of other people to get what we want. There's no love in that kind of yearning. So really the thing is to discover what that may mean in your own life. And one way to do that is to see what do I yearn for now? And then not get rid of the yearning, but say is what I yearn for actually going to make me happy? And if you're not convinced uh, intellectually... Go try and get it and see what happens. I often tell people, especially younger people who are just starting out in life, who are you know, full of enthusiasm and dreams and ambitions and stuff like that, and maybe they take up a little spiritual practice, but it's conflicting with what they really want to do. They want to get out in the world and you know, have some experience and all that. And I say, go. No, try not to do any harm, because that will really cause you more suffering along the line. you know. And then just watch, observe. Be mindful. And whenever you get what you want, that's the time to really be mindful. Because at first, of course, you're oh, you're delighted, you're thrilled, you're really happy. But how long does that actually last? And then what? And if you are mindful, you will see, oh, you have this yearning. This, we have this fundamental yearning to be happy. That's, that's the truth. We know we are unhappy. You know, people don't yearn for happiness who are happy. Happy people don't yearn for happiness. So our yearning has wisdom in it. Our problem is it's misdirected. It's directed at things that cannot bring us what we truly yearn for. So the wisdom part of this is discover that and direct your yearning at what at least has the possibility of bringing you that, even though you might not be convinced, just, you know, on somebody say so. In my own case, it wasn't so much I was convinced that there was such a thing as enlightenment and all that, as I became convinced that there was no other way to become happy. So I had nothing to lose. It didn't take a lot of courage or anything. If you have that insight, you see, if you really know that deep down. All right, then. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have some tea. Check out the library. And until we see you again, peace to you all.